Good morning, Church at Avenue South. I echo Libby's words and just want to say again how grateful we are that you chose to worship with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 13. Many of you know that we've been in a vision series over the last couple of weeks, so we're going to take a look how the great commandment shapes and informs our behavior and our actions. A couple of weeks ago, I was invited to take part in my, my son's lunch at a school. He was superstar of the week which means that he got to be the line leader all week, and that's what he was fired up about. So he said, Dad, can you, come? can you come hang out with me for lunch? I said, absolutely. So I get to school, and I meet him in his classroom, and we walk to the cafeteria, and he's pointing out that that's Daddy, that's my coach, that's my teacher, that's my friend. And when we got in the cafeteria, they had up on the stage, they had a private table for all the superstars of the week. About halfway through this lunch, I noticed a young lady get up, probably kindergarten, first grade, get up from the table. She was carrying her tray over to uh, the kitchen area, and her foot caught on the chair, and she just ate it. I mean, busted her mouth. Chocolate milk went everywhere. Food went everywhere. And And I looked out at the reaction of the students. Some of them, primarily boys, were laughing, thought it was funny. I watched other students gawk and stare, and it was clear that this girl was was embarrassed. So I looked over to see what my son's response was. I noticed he wasn't there. He was running down the stairs. He ran into the kitchen. He grabbed a thing of paper towels, and he got down on his hands and his knees, and he began to help this young girl. I first thought, that is not my son. If you know Hudson, (laughs) we can't get him to clean up his own room, much less help somebody else. He's got to have an ulterior motive. I mean, anytime he helps his sister clean her room or he cleans his own room, he wants a reward, right? Daddy, I want a new toy. I want some ice cream. I did a good deed. That's what I was going through in my head. So he came. He sat back down. And I remember saying this. I said, son, that was extremely kind of you. You didn't have to do that. I said, but why did you do that? Here's what he said. He said, Daddy, I love Jesus. And you told me that if I love Jesus, I love people and we're to help them. Now, I was overwhelmed with emotion. First of all, guilt because of the thoughts I had about my son for the reason that he did it. But it was a proud dad moment. Because my wife and I work really, really hard at teaching our kids that loving Jesus requires that you love people. And it doesn't matter their race, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status. It doesn't even matter if you like them or have anything in common with them. And the way that you display that love, in the words of my six-year-old, was you help them. You serve for the sake of the gospel. As I mentioned, over the past couple of weeks, we've been in the sermon series. We've been taking a look at the greatest commandment, which is what? It's to love the Lord our God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, with the totality of who we are. And Aaron shared with us last week that one of the ways that we do that is through obedience, obedience to his commands. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to take a look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus is with his disciples. He gives them one very specific command. It's the last hours of Jesus' life. And he says, if you love my father, 
if you are my disciple, this is what it looks like. I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. Verse 1, chapter 13. The Apostle John writes, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now by the time of supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will know. Peter said, You will never wash my feet, ever. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head as well. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. That is why he said you are not all clean. Verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and he put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. This is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also to wash another's feet. For I have given you the example that you should also do, just as I have done for you. Do you know what I have done for you? So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Let's pray. Jesus, in um, full disclosure, being transparent this morning, it is difficult to love people. Sometimes it's my family, my immediate family. Sometimes it's, it's the men and women I see out on the street that may cut me off on 65. But God, you gave us the command to love you and love people. And my job this morning is not to guilt or manipulate but my prayer is, is that our love for you would compel us to love those around us. Because we want to be people in the church that is known for its love. In your name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Let me give you some context to this, this passage we just read. So the author is John. John is an apostle, a disciple of Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends. And so he's an eyewitness to the events of Jesus' life. As I mentioned, this is the last week of Jesus' life. This story takes place on Thursday before he's crucified on Friday. John, the disciples, and Jesus are in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Now, what is Passover? What do we mean by Passover? Well, that term in Hebrew means to preach. And it's, it's a week-long celebration where men and women in Jewish households will go out and they'll slaughter a male lamb without defect. They'll take that blood, they'll put it on the sides of their door, and the top of their doorpost, they will eat the meat from that slaughtered lamb. They will eat unleavened bread. We call this a Seder meal. So they'll celebrate the holiday by partaking in a Seder meal. Then they will read the story of the Exodus. So Passover is a time for Jewish men and women to celebrate what God has done in their life, how he was faithful, and he delivered them out of Egypt and out of slavery. 
So Jesus knows that the time is drawing near for them to celebrate the holiday with the Seder. So he tells Peter and John, I want you two to go into the city. You'll see a man carrying a water jar. Now, why is that significant? Men didn't carry water jars. So this guy would have stood out. Peter and John would have known, this is the guy Jesus is telling us about. He says, go into the city. You'll see the man. Ask him for a private room and begin to make preparations for the feast. Peter and John go into the city. They see the man. It's just as Jesus has said. They get the room. They begin to make preparations. And I want you to look what happens next. Now, by the time of the supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot, to betray him. So I want you to know, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, has already betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus, being fully God, fully man, knows this. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So Jesus knows that his, his hours are numbered. He knows he's about to be arrested and tried and crucified. So he got up from supper laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Picture this. These men have no idea what's about to happen to Jesus, but Jesus understands what he's about to do. They're fellowshipping. They're having a good time, hanging out. Jesus gets up from the table. He goes over to the wash basin, and he begins to wash their feet. Now, some of you may have read this story for the first time and thought, that's, that's rather odd, like, right? That's unique. Because when I have people in my home, like I'm host of the party, I don't wash their feet. I may ask them to take their shoes off or I may receive their jacket or their coat, but we don't wash feet. Like, it's, it's, it's uncommon in 2019. But in, first century, but in the first century and in ancient Jewish culture, it was common courtesy to wash somebody's feet. Think about it. I mean, they don't have socks or stockings, so they're traveling from place to place by walking, so sand and and gravel and dirt and mud and muck is getting all over their shoes. And so if you hosted a party, it was not only a mark of honor, but a betrayal of hospitality not to provide, listen to this, a servant to wash your guest's feet. The term servant there in the passage in Greek is slave. So Jesus being the host of the party should have provided a servant to wash the disciples' feet. But he doesn't. Here's what I also want you to know about this passage. It would have been Peter's job to wash his peers' feet. You know how we know that? Because of his position at the table. Foot washing was reserved for a slave. It was the duty of a slave. It was for the lowest person in the room. And on this particular evening, it wasn't Judas. It was Peter. Now I want you to look up here. Let me give you a picture of this. What painting is this? Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, right? Now, beautiful, famous, it's biblically inaccurate. The Last Supper didn't look anything like this. Peter, James, John, Jesus, the disciples would have reclined at what we know as a triclinium table. Let me show you this picture. This is the table. This is what it would have looked like in Jerusalem. Now, we know, according to scholars, where three of the disciples would have sat along with Jesus. And I want to walk you through this really quickly. Jesus is the host of the party. Remember, he, he asked for the private room. So traditionally, in Passover feast, the host would have sat in the second chair closest to the door. To his right would have been someone he loved, 
he trusted. And they would have played the role as the bodyguard protector, and it would have been John. John was the most beloved of the disciples. So we know that John brought a weapon, probably a sword, to the dinner. And his job was to protect anybody, anything from harming Jesus. Now, at any feast, any party, there's typically a guest of honor. And we know that the guest of honor sat to the left of the host. Look who the guest of honor is. Judas. Again, Jesus knew that Judas had already betrayed him. Yet he is in the role, the position at the table of the guest of honor. And we know this because he would have had his hand close enough to dip it in the same bowl as Jesus. I want you to look all the way down here. Who do we see here? Peter. Jesus said, Peter, I want you to sit there. Peter would have been closest to the wash basin. He'd been the lowest person at the table. For whatever reason, he chooses not to wash the disciples' feet. So Jesus gets up from the table goes to the wash basin. He washes their feet. Now, I think there's something you need to know about me this morning. Uh, I cannot stand feet. I don't like feet. I don't even like my own feet. And I remember coming home from school, I watched my dad come in. We'd eat dinner together, and he would sit on the couch. My mom would lay on the couch beside him. She would put her feet in his lap, her bare feet in his lap. He would take lotion out, and he would begin to rub her feet. Now, my mom was a school teacher, so she was on her feet all day, so I'm sure it felt great, but it was extremely gross. He would rub my mom's feet for like 30 minutes to an hour. And I'm like, bro, come on, let's do something else. First of all, I didn't want to see that PDA, but second of all, find another way to express it outside of rubbing her feet. And my kids know that I don't like feet, so my daughter especially, she she loves to pick at me because I like to pick at her. And so what she'll do is... She'll go outside and she'll play. She loves, she hates wearing shoes and socks, so she'll play barefooted. And I mean, she'll come in the house, just her feet are covered. There's lint and dirt and gravel and sand and all this. And she will get up on the couch, she will stick her feet in my face, say, Daddy, look at my feet, smell my feet, don't they stink? I'm like, how does a four-year-old's feet stink so bad? These were the kind of feet that Jesus was dealing with. These men had traveled all week. There was not a local salon where they could go down and get a pedicure. They had not bathed. These are teenage boys that had stinky, nasty, smelly feet. And Jesus, the creator God, bent down and he washed their feet. Now, here's my question. This is where I want to spend our time this morning. Why? Why did he do that? Yes, we know it's common courtesy. Why did he do that? Does that mean that everyone that comes into our home are supposed to wash their feet? Is this an institution of the ordinance of foot washing? Why did Jesus do it? Well, he gives us an explanation in verses 12 through 16. I want you to look there. This is fascinating. When Jesus had washed their feet and he put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. This is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. So Jesus is providing an example. And church, I want you to know this. This is an object lesson in service and humility. Jesus said, you want to be my follower, my disciple? Then you should live a lifestyle of servanthood. Now, here's what's unique. You may not know about this passage. I want you to go back. 
this week and read Luke chapter 22. Because right before this happened, the disciples were in a discussion. They're in a dispute, an argument around the table. And here's what they're, here's what they're discussing. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So finally they asked Jesus, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So their, their, their question is essentially about what? It's about position and power, right? When you come back to set up your kingdom, who's going to sit to your right? Who's going to sit to your left? And here's what Jesus does. He gets up from the table and he washes feet. Jesus says, you want to be considered great in my kingdom? You will not only love your father with your heart, soul, mind, and your strength, but you will love people, and you are to serve and wash feet. You see, greatness in God's kingdom is not based on position, power, prestige, assets, your athletic ability, your musical ability. It's based on, and hear me say this, it's based on living the Christian life requiring you to love people, and you demonstrate that love by serving for the sake of the gospel. And Libby, I had no idea you were going to share that with us this morning, but it goes hand in hand with what Jesus is teaching us as a church because men and women in this room, Christians are called to be set apart and to be different. You know, one of the ways that we do that is we put other people's needs before our own. And Jesus knew, this is my last shot with these men before I'm to be killed. This is my last shot. Here's what I want to teach them. It's not about you. It is not about you. It's about humbling yourself, becoming a servant, and washing people's feet, ministering and serving their needs. And Jesus understood that. You can go back to the book of Mark. What does he say my mission is? It's not to be served, but it's to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And I want to read this to you. Peter, remember Peter, the guy who was supposed to wash the disciples' feet? He doesn't. He's so impacted by this act. Here's what he writes in 1 Peter 4. I want you to read this. This is, this is incredible. Above all, maintain an intense love for each other since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Based on the gift each one has received, use it, look at this, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. That's what Peter's saying. All of us in this room have a spiritual gift, a talent, a skill. It's not for your own benefit or your own enjoyment. It's for the kingdom of God. You need to be using that gift for the kingdom. Now, that means if you're in this room and you have a spiritual gift of teaching or leadership, then maybe you think about leading out in our, in our next-gen ministries and preschool, children, students, college. Maybe, maybe you start exercising, using that gift to lead a life group. If you have the spiritual gift of, of hospitality or helps, then maybe you could, should serve here, I don't know, maybe part of our guest services team on Sunday. You're helping in the parking lot. You're helping with coffee. You're helping greet people at the door. Maybe you have the gift of encouragement. We could use you on our nurture team or our prayer team. Writing notes of encouragement for men and women that are in a difficult season. What Peter is saying here and what Jesus is ultimately saying is God has wired and gifted you in a certain way and you need to be using those gifts and talents for the kingdom. Now, some of you may be sitting here, Matthew, I hear you, I'm on board, preach it, but I don't know what my gifts and talents are. I don't know my skills. Here's what I ask you to do. Your next step today, as soon as the service is over, walk out those glass doors, go to the welcome desk, and sign up for our place class on November 10th. 
Sign up for our place class on November the 10th because that class will help you understand how you're wired, how you're gifted, what your skill set is, and then we will equip and empower you to serve in your gifting. But I'm well aware of the fact, and I want you to hear me say this, there are some of you that come here week in and week out. You listen to the worship. You listen to the sermon. You go home for seven days and you do nothing. You come back here on Sunday, listen to the worship, you listen to the sermon. We would call you a consumer. And being a disciple of Jesus is not being a consumer. It's being a stakeholder. Take what God has given you and give it back to the kingdom. Now, how does this impact Church at Avenue South? You hear our pastor say all the time, we want to be not just a church that is concerned with loving people and serving people one hour a week on Sunday, right? He says what? The other 167 hours a week, we want to be the church. So it is our desire, Church at Avenue South, to be a sending church, one that sends men and women out who understand their gifting, understand how they are wired to serve locally, nationally, and globally. And over this past year, in terms of locally, Libby alluded to it earlier, we've had over 350 people serve in Serving Saturdays. 350 people. What is a Serving Saturday? We gather together every eight weeks, and we send teams out into the community, and we serve. So maybe that's where you start. It's very low risk, high relationship. Maybe that's where your next step is this morning. You'll say, you know what, Matthew? I'm not certain how I'm wired in my gift, but I can show up and give maybe an hour or two hours of my time, just like yesterday at Carla Lawrence. We've also, we average about 25 to 30 men and women that serve on a weekly basis at Hope Clinic, Freedom's Promise, Salome, Carter Lawrence. They serve as mentors, interpreters. We have men and women that are nurses and in, and in the medical field that will serve on rotation at Salome. Maybe for you, your next step is figuring out what ministry tugs on your heartstrings, how you want to make a difference, what is breaking your heart, and you begin to serve. Even if you have 30 minutes a week, 45 minutes a week, an hour a week, those organizations will be grateful for your service. Well, we've also had 30 men and women serve our ethnic communities through the National Neighbors Initiative. Now, what is National Neighbors? Well, it's a, it is a program that takes a team of volunteers and pairs them with a newly arrived refugee family, and they not only build relationships with that family, but they create a broader social system and structure network. So maybe you're passionate about reaching internationals or our ethnic communities. Maybe that's where you start this morning. Globally, this past year, listen to this, and I, and I love this, because t- last year it was 15. This year we sent out over 50 men and women to serve all across the world. Countries like Cambodia, South Korea, Guatemala, Honduras, Spain. And in 2020, we're going to send out over 30 teams to serve all over the world. And I want to put these dates up here. I want you to see this. I'm giving you permission. Take out your phone. Take a snapshot. This is hot off the press, all right? So these are 2020 mission journeys. So maybe your next step is you take a picture of this, and for the next seven days you spend time praying, asking God, Where would you have me serve and where would you have me go? As you can see, I just highlighted a couple. Athens, Greece, Guatemala City, Rio, Brazil, Seoul, South Korea, Cape Town, Valencia, Guatemala City. We're also going to London, Vietnam, Israel, Poland. 
Maybe your next step is the next seven days you pray and say, God, where is it you would send me, have me to go to use my gifts in 2020? Now, why am I telling you all this? Because I don't want you to use the excuse of not knowing is the reason why you don't serve. God is on the move here, and I want you to be a part of that. And just like Libby shared, my, my job is not to guilt or manipulation manipulate you into serving. It's hopefully that your love for Jesus will compel you to serve. But it is transformational. It will change your life. But I also want you to know this. Go back to our passage. Do you think it would have been difficult for Jesus to serve in this way? Absolutely it would have. He's washing the feet of Judas, someone who just betrayed him. He's washing the feet of Peter, who is about to deny him. And he's washing the feet of the other disciples who are about to desert desert him when he needs them the most. Uncomfortable, messy. It stretched and challenged him. So don't hear me say that serving is going to be easy. As Libby alluded to, it's going to be a battle between your heart and your mind. Everything is going to be competing for that time that you get ready to show up on serving Saturday. Even if you sign up ahead of time. It's going to be messy, requires intentionality, and it's going to stretch and challenge you, even to the point where it's outside of your comfort zone. But Jesus says at the end of this passage, you will be blessed when you serve. And that term blessed in Greek, it brings you joy. Brings you joy. And some of us never get to experience the abundant life that Jesus provides because it comes from serving. Would you pray with me?